Chemical Watch podcast. Unlock the full value of your compliance and product stewardship with world-leading insight and intelligence from Chemical Watch. To find out more or request a demo, visit chemicalwatch.com. Chemical Watch. Intelligence to transform product safety. Hello and welcome to this week's news podcast hosted by members of the Chemical Watch team. I'm Kate Lowe, Global Managing Editor at Chemical Watch, and for today's episode, I'm joined by our North America reporter, Julia John, Europe Desk Editor, Luke Buxton, and Publishing Manager, Henry Tipping. The subjects we'll be discussing today include publication by the European Commission of two comprehensive inception impact assessments on actions planned under the EU chemical strategy and which paved the way for potentially significant changes to REACH and CLP. We'll also be hearing uh, from Chemical Watch Publishing Manager Henry Tipping on the findings of the latest annual Chemical Watch survey into chemicals management across the globe. But first, let's start with the US and the latest action being taken at state and federal level to control the use of per and polyfluoroalkyl substances or PFAS, which are the subject of increasing regulatory activity across the globe. We reported two weeks ago on the US EPA's announcement that it was implementing a new strategy for reviewing low volume exemptions for PFAS. Now, low volume exemptions are intended to allow substances used in small quantities to come to market in 30 days as an alternative to the more rigorous 90 day pre-manufacture notice review process. Now, following up this story last week, we heard from a leading environmental law firm that there is a, a good chance the EPA will further limit Uh, Tosca new chemicals program exemptions for approving PFAS. Now, meanwhile, at state level, we reported last week that Vermont has moved a step closer to approving a set of far-reaching chemical restrictions for a variety of consumer products, including the nation's first prohibitions on PFAS in carpets and also ski waxes. So, Julia, Um, Can you start by telling us why some stakeholders think that the EPA could further limit Tosca new chemicals program exemptions for approving PFAS? And what what might this entail? Yeah, for sure. So the EPA announced in late April that it expects to deny pending and new low volume exemptions or LVEs for PFASs. Over the years, these exemptions, which bind the submitter to a production value of less than 10,000 kilograms per year, have enabled companies to bring 660 PFASs to market in 30 days rather than have to go through the at least 90-day pre-manufacture notice or PNM review process. But NGO petitioners led by Earth Justice argue the agency can and should also eliminate three other types of exemptions for PFASs. The byproduct exemption, the low releases and low exposure or Lorax exemption, and the polymer exemption. They say this is necessary to ensure industry is not manufacturing or using any PFASs that the EPA 
hasn't fully evaluated for potentially harmful health and environmental effects. John Gardella, an attorney at CMBG3 Law, thinks there is a good chance that the EPA will actually do what the environmental advocates are asking. That's because getting rid of all the exemptions would give the agency more time to thoroughly assess PFAS's and their risks before deciding whether to approve them. He says this would align with the current EPA's and the Biden administration's science-based approach to regulatory decision-making. The agency has already taken steps to make its Tosca New Chemicals review tougher, but it remains to be seen whether it will take any further action on PFAS exemptions. But if it did do away with them, companies would likely have to submit P&Ms for all new PFAS that they manufacture, process, use, or dispose, and even for non-commercial byproducts that have not undergone review. This would increase companies' pre-market notification responsibilities for byproducts, which they currently don't have to notify the agency of in detail. And they could have to wait several more months to bring certain substances related to those byproducts to market. Mr. Gardella recommends that companies on compressed industrial timelines should seriously look into possible substitutes for chemicals linked to PFAS byproducts in their industrial processes. Okay, that's great. Thanks, Julia. Um, so NGOs, uh, we know, are, are clearly keen that this should happen. But but what about what's the industry reaction been to uh, this possibility? Yeah, so industry has already objected to the EPA's announcement regarding LVEs for PFAS. Robert Halminiak, the Society of Chemical Manufacturers and Affiliates, or SOCMAs, Vice President of Legal and Government Relations, said the exemptions aren't actually letting hazardous PFASs through because the agency only grants them if it determines the substances won't present an unreasonable risk. He believes limiting exemptions for a whole substance class instead of assessing each chemical's safety separately is not scientifically sound and could hurt commercial innovation. The byproduct exemption is important for a lot of companies because it allows them to skip resource-intensive pre-market review on many non-commercial substances. The byproduct exemption's removal would force companies to go through the PMN review for all PFAS byproducts and increase the regulatory burden on industry. And according to Mr. Gardella, manufacturing delays caused by the extended review process could have financial implications for companies. He also said the potential need to modify supply chain sourcing to find replacements for any PFAS raw materials, parts, or byproducts in their processes could be costly in terms of time and money. So given these possible consequences, we can assume industry wouldn't be very happy if it could no longer use exemptions for PFAS. Okay, thanks again, Julia. Um, recent developments on uh, PFAS in, in the US certainly haven't been limited to Tosca. Um, I understand that there is also a far-reaching measure being considered in Vermont to address the substance class. So can, can you talk us through it? Yeah, so 
Vermont's legislature is expected to pass an unprecedented bill this week called S-20 to ban PFASs in a wide range of products, including carpets and ski waxes. The Senate approved the bill in March, and last week, the State House approved an amended version. The Senate is scheduled to vote on that amended version this week, which would advance it to the governor. The bill's lead sponsor, Senator Virginia Lyons, said Governor Phil Scott's administration has signaled he will sign the legislation into law. And in line with laws already adopted by other states, S-20 would limit PFASs in Class B firefighting foam and mandate disclosure for their use in firefighters' personal protective equipment. It would also prohibit PFASs in food packaging, as New York has adopted a law to do, and which Maine and Washington have also begun to do if alternatives are available. But what puts the measure ahead of those enacted by other states is a ban on these compounds in residential carpets, rugs, aftermarket treatment products, and ski waxes, which is a niche application that has raised concern in recent years. It also would prohibit phthalates in food packaging and allow the state to adopt rules to ban bisphenols from that application as well, another move that puts Vermont out in the lead of other states. Additionally, the measure would add PFHXS, PFHPA, and PFNA to the list of chemicals in children's products that manufacturers must disclose to the state. The Senate bill had included all PFASs, but the House amended it to make the provision more workable. So Senator Lyons told Chemical Watch that Vermont's Department of Health said it would be difficult to require disclosure for so many PFASs while focused on the pandemic still. So if the Senate passes the House bill, the children's product reporting requirement would cover all five PFASs regulated in state drinking water, as PFOS and PFOA are already on the list. This would make Vermont stand out even more from Washington and Oregon which have similar but less comprehensive right-to-know schemes for children's products. And if S-20 becomes law, restrictions on firefighting foam and reporting requirements for kids' products would start in July 2022. And other restrictions would begin in July 2023. Okay, thanks again, Julia. That was great. Thank you. Now, let's turn to Europe and the latest developments regarding implementation of the EU chemical strategy for sustainability. The strategy, published last October, commits to more than 50 wide-ranging actions that are expected to be completed by 2024. Now, last week, the European Commission uh, published comprehensive inception impact assessments on two of those actions planned under the EU chemical strategy and which paved the way for potentially significant changes to REACH and CLP. Now, the EU executive launched the inception impact assessments, uh, and they're quite long names. One is the revision of REACH regulation to help achieve a toxic free environment. And the other is revision of EU legislation on hazard classification, labeling and packaging of chemicals. And it launched those on the 4th of May. So, Luke, um, first of all, what, what does the inception impact assessment concerning REACH tell us about what the Commission is considering? Hello, Kate. 
It's been seven months now since the ambitious and comprehensive chemical strategy for sustainability was published. As you said, the Commission has committed to more than 50 actions with industry left pondering exactly what new changes are likely to come in, what they need to adapt to and when. Uh, speaking just after the strategy was launched, Sylvie Lemoyne, Suffix Executive Director of Product Stewardship, asked whether changes would be akin to keyhole surgery or open heart surgery. Well, now this Inception Impact Assessment, or IIA, gives us a firm insight into what the Commission is thinking. The IIA lays out seven areas where changes, potentially significant ones in some cases, are likely in the next three years. Um, we know the fundamentals, namely, these are revisions of registration requirements and provisions for dossier and substance evaluation, as well as reforms of the restriction process and the controversial authorization model. But what the IIA does is it shows us all the options that may be implemented for each subject. I'll give the example of the potential reform to the authorization process. This shows us that the Commission could look at clarifications and simplifications of current provisions, national authorization for small applications, that, that's a brand new um, idea, integrating the reach authorization and restriction systems into one, and improving the interface with other pieces of legislation which would um, complement actions under the One Substance One Assessment Initiative. So there's a lot for stakeholders in the chemicals community to, to process there. Sure. Great. Thanks very much, Luke. Um, so what about the inception impact assessment concerning CLP? What, what, what do we know from that about the Commission's plans? Well, the IIA for the, re, for the, sorry, for the CLP provisions um, have uh, options for 11 proposed regulatory measures, um, but it does contain less information than the REACH IIA. Uh, you have the big one, the introduction of new hazard classes such as endocrine disruptors and, and corresponding criteria. That's already stirred up quite a bit of debate. Um, the IIA also suggests measures to clarify certain obligations, including for the classification of mixtures and some complex substances, and for distributors uh, submitting information through an only representative or other means to poison centres. Um, the latter, um, only representatives, is a new concept. Another key measure here is the potential introduction of a uh, prioritisation mechanism for harmonising the classification of certain chemicals. And I'll mention one more, that's the, the possibility of the Commission bringing in a duty to provide information on some hazards on the label for products currently outside the scope of CLP. So it'll be interesting to see what, what that leads to. Thanks, Luke. So what happens next? Just after the strategy was released, um, NGOs raised concerns that impact assessments on certain elements of the strategy could mean that legislative changes are delayed for years to come, resulting in so-called paralysis by analysis, a, a term we've heard a few times before. <clears throat> and Cephic Sylvie Lemoyne remarked at the time that a new reach may be ahead of us and that industry must be ready for a uh, paradigm shift, she said. So the Commission is facing clear pressure to act fast, not just from NGOs from a human health and environmental protection point of view, but also from industry's need for predictability and to give it the build-up time it needs to make what could end up being sizable adjustments. For both of the IIAs, um, 
targeted stakeholders will have until the 1st of June to provide their input. I've already seen some responses on the website. On the REACH side, the Commission will then run a public consultation on the options in the first quarter of next year with the intention to adopt new legislation in the fourth quarter of that year. While for the CLP side, it expects to hold a public consultation in the second quarter of this year with adoption eyed for the fourth quarter. It's inevitable that heated debate will follow. Thanks again, Luke. So finally, let's turn to the results of the annual Chemical Watch survey of the chemicals management sector. Now, during the three months from December 2020 to February 2021, Chemical Watch took the opportunity to survey its chemicals management community across the globe in order to uncover the key factors driving activity in the market, as well as track changes in in employment and spot emerging trends. Now, respondents to this year's survey, the 11th that uh, Chemical Watch has undertaken, include chemicals companies and their downstream customers, service providers, regulatory professionals and more. Now, the aim is to provide a 360 degree view of the state of today's chemicals management industry, supported by a series of articles examining key regulatory and non-regulatory drivers, recruitment trends and demand for professional services, as well as regional reports on the US, EU and Asia. So, Henry, um, can you start by telling us what this year's findings reveal about the regulatory and non-regulatory issues that are uppermost in people's minds? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Kate. Um, As we might expect, the list of regulatory issues faced by our members is a long one. So before we even start to look at the trends, this long list of regulations, regional activities, global policy and initiatives reminds us of the huge workload our members already face. And as we know, the regulatory landscape is a constantly moving target for companies. But central to our survey each year is to identify the key drivers for our members to answer the question, what is top of their agenda? What is keeping them awake at night? And since 2017, we have seen reach and reach related activities from registration to updating dossiers at the top of this list. Interestingly, this year, whilst REACH still takes top position, we see the EU Chemical Strategy for Sustainability scoring very highly. As a relative newcomer to the list, there will be plenty of work anticipated to follow. Then we see Brexit scoring third highest, with more than half of all respondents noting this as a key driver for their work. Whereas Brexit was included as a non-regulatory driver in previous surveys, we see it move very much into the regulatory landscape now as things begin to unfold. Sustainable development goals is also given a top spot this year. Something we increasingly hear in conversations with our members at Chemical Watch is the importance of going beyond compliance, anticipating what is coming down the pipeline and getting ahead of these emerging issues. In terms of the non-regulatory issues, the top three organization, um, the top three for organizations were negative impacts of COVID-19, economic performance, and supply chain demands. And again, perhaps nothing surprising in that list, but it is likely that all three correlate. One of the major Im- negative impacts of COVID-19 is economic performance, of course, and, and which itself can be linked to issues with the supply chain. The survey indicates some common issues that will resonate with many businesses in what has been a difficult time for many. 
Okay, that's great. Thanks, Henry. Um, so what do the findings have to say uh, about COVID-19 and the impact of the pandemic on the sector? Yeah, so as, as listeners will know, we've been keeping a close eye on the impacts of COVID-19 at Chemical Watch, having run two surveys last year that looked at the issues uh, facing our members. The indicators from this latest survey seem only to reiterate what we've been hearing so far, and that is that our members are you know, certainly extremely busy. Dealing with a global regulatory agenda makes for an already busy workload, and this has really only been compounded by the impacts of COVID-19. On top of this, many companies had to make rapid changes to product lines, responding to demand for hand sanitizers, for example, face supply chain issues, and all the while continue to manage and track chemical inventories through this disruption. It's certainly been a challenging 12 months, but overall the mood in the market is a positive one. The majority of organizations anticipate they will maintain plans for new product development and innovations. Some of these are even being accelerated as industry and policymakers look to drive forward a green agenda out of the pandemic. As I mentioned earlier, three out of five respondents across key sectors ranks the EU chemical strategy for sustainability as a major regulatory driver. For businesses in the consumer product sector, this took the top spot. Other initiatives to pursue a green agenda, including the UN, UN Sustainable Development Goals, as well as other policies to develop the circular economy, are also cited as having a significant impact on workloads. Okay, thanks, Henry. Um, so you've been involved with the survey for a number of years now. Um, did you see any sort of big surprises in the data this, this year? Yeah, there's obviously um, tons of data there. Um, there were some interesting trends this year and three notable things that I picked out. Um, firstly, seeing the EU chemical strategy and Brexit competing with REACH-related activities for that top spot on people's agendas, uh, I thought that was very interesting, although perhaps not entirely surprising, as I said, given that both are set to have big implications for companies globally. Uh, both issues are still very much unfolding, of course, but getting ahead of what's coming is something we know is very important to our members uh, and you know, to, they're looking to proactively manage that risk. Second, secondly, I would say the, um, you know, we see that in-house chemical management and control teams are seeking more external help. So fewer organizations are now managing all of their work in-house. And what this means is that there is an increase in demand for external support from service providers. Last year, we reported a total spend of 330 million euros on these services, but this year it comes in at over 550 million euros. And so that brings me on to the third trend that I picked out. Um, you know, what are organizations spending this money on? Over the last four or five years, we've seen laboratories taking the lion's share of this total spend. But this year, we see a significant portion being spent on IT and software solutions. As companies look to manage their chemical management control programs with greater efficiency and transparency. These solutions are helping companies with a wide range of issues from tracking regulations, communicating with their supply chains, and being able to automate risk management processes. And that's just to name a few. Other areas where we saw spending increase was around information services and also training services. We also saw a big jump in the need for representation and management, which would include things like outsourcing of business processes, registration services, dossier preparation, or having representatives on the ground in different countries in order to manage placing products in new markets that kind of hands-on technical support that companies need to continue and grow their business operations around the world. 
And I think this signifies a trend compared with previous surveys. It appears organizations are starting to target their specific areas of need when they provision such services. So rather than just a general plea for help, it shows the importance for organizations to have a better understanding of their dynamic compliance needs and the gaps in their knowledge. In response, we are seeing service providers also diversifying their offerings, becoming smarter in how they deliver their services to global organizations uh, in order to better meet those needs. And that's really just a quick top level summary of some of the things reported in the guide, Kate. So thanks. Okay, thanks very much, Henry. So that brings us to the end of today's episode. So thank you again to Julia John, Luke Buxton and Henry Tipping for sharing their insight into today's stories with us. And thank you to you, our audience, for listening to today's episode. If you would like to find out more about the topics from today's discussion, please head over to the Chemical Watch website at chemicalwatch.com. And finally, we're currently running a listener survey and would like to hear your views on how we can make the podcast as valuable as possible to the industry. So if you'd like to share your thoughts, please do look out for the podcast email, which will be coming your way in the next few days. Until next week, goodbye. Unlock the full value of your compliance and product stewardship with world-leading insight and intelligence from Chemical Watch. To find out more or request a demo, visit chemicalwatch.com. Chemical Watch. Intelligence to transform product safety. Chemical Watch Podcast.